Amen. Please be seated. If you're an elementary-aged person and in school, you can head right out those doors, walking, walking, Keegan, and uh, go to your class. If you're a middle-aged school human, you can also go out those same doors and head to the back where there will be a middle school class back there. Welcome, welcome, happy Sunday to everybody. Um, we have a lot of tiny people here, so they're all precious in God's sight, and those are some great shoes she's got on there, so way to go, Mom. Um, I, uh, when we were singing that last song, there's a, a friend of mine who, uh, he's in his 60s, and he, is, um, he has buried two wives and is currently married to his third, lost his first wife to cancer, and then remarried, and then lost um, his second wife to the same kind of cancer 15 months after uh, his first wife had died. And I was, uh, I love being around people who have suffered greatly because they just have, I just want to just sit down. I'm like, just talk and I'm just going to soak up what you've learned. And I asked him, I said, what have you learned from all of that? And he said, uh, two things, that God is good and that God is in control. And uh, singing that song that God is good, <clears throat> it's uh, much easier when things are going well, but it is, it is very healing and and redeeming when things are not. And so the reality that God is good is constantly challenged by our circumstances. And yet God's goodness never wavers. Such an amazing, simple song. As Trev mentioned um, earlier, by the way, I'm Brandon Scott. I'm a pastor here at the Vine Community Church. Thank you for coming here on a Sunday. I know there's other things you could be doing. And as we joke all the time, you drive by like 25 better churches on your way here. So we're glad that you're here. Um, those of you who have attended here for a while know that what I'm saying is probably true. And uh, visitors are like, why would he talk like that? But it's just, uh, eh, it's, it's where we're at. So we, um, our smoke machine broke, by the way, this week, in case you're wondering. So it, uh, yeah, it's for Don's birthday. So it broke a long time ago. It broke before we ever got it, actually, and uh, never got it fixed. But we're in this sermon series called The Ordinary. And as, uh, as, as Trev mentioned earlier, we... We are going and looking at these little vignettes, these stories of people in Scripture that were entirely ordinary. To us, they look extraordinary because we see Abraham, for instance, in, in Genesis chapter 22. We see Paul and John in Acts chapter 4 uh, telling a crippled man, get up and walk. We see Moses leading a nation out of slavery and into the promised land. And yet they were all just ordinary people. And as we looked at Abraham a couple weeks ago, you have this story arc of redemption in the book of Genesis where, where it, you have this picture of the, the fallenness of humanity and their attempts to reach God. And then you have this explanation of all these nations of people. And then God picks one person out, Abraham. And through that one person, he was going to send the Redeemer, Jesus. And you have the story of Abraham's family, which would make an incredibly long and very good Probably movie on, now Hallmark would not play most of the things in Genesis. But this incredible story of God's redemptive work through the life of Abraham. And then you come to Moses, which Treb looked at last week, where you had the, 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 uh, the people of the promise who were in slavery in Egypt. And they cry out to God and he sends Moses to go rescue them and redeem them out of that and bring them into the land that God had promised them. And Moses was a very reluctant leader. And yet God used him mightily, not only to lead them out of that land, but to lead them all the way through their time in the desert. And finally, uh, through Joshua to bring him into the promised land. 
And that's where we end up today. After 40 years of wandering in the desert and Moses' life is coming to an end, Joshua then takes the people of Israel. He leads the nation to take the land that God had promised them and to go and claim it. And so they go in there, and this generation had grown up for 40 years in the desert. The reason they wandered in the desert is because they did not obey the Lord. And so the Lord let no one from that generation except Caleb and uh, Joshua go into the land. And so when they get in there, they take this land, and that generation was incredibly faithful because they remembered who the Lord was. But right after that generation ends, the following generation did not know the Lord. And the book of Judges opens up with this explanation of this generation did not follow the Lord's ways. They forgot so quickly what the Lord had done for them to redeem them and bring them into this land. And everyone just did what was right in his own eyes. And so that brings us to the book of Judges. We're going to be in chapter 6 today, looking at the, uh, the story of a man named Gideon. And <clears throat> at the beginning of the book, you, you start this cycle of Judges where the people are in this low spot. Because of their disobedience to the Lord, well, they start out on a high spot, I guess. They're obeying the Lord and doing what he says. Then they fall away from the Lord and start to worship the idols and the gods of the land that they're in. Then, they, then the Lord sends, or, or uh, they, invaders from the surrounding areas come in and start harassing them and giving them all kinds of trouble. So they cry out to the Lord. God sends this judge to redeem them. They live for a while in faithfulness. And then they fall back in, and there's this cycle that repeats over and over and over again in the book of Judges. It's a, it's a very tragic book, a very tragic book. And Gideon is one of its heroes, and he's, a, he's quite the hero. So we're going to get into his story. And before we do that, let's, let's pray. We're going to be in Judges chapter 6. <clears throat> Lord, we love you. I love that we can sing praises to you as the redeemed people of God, that we can come here and confess that Every single accusation of our accuser, the devil, is true when he accuses us of our own sin. And yet all of that accusation got put on you on the cross. And so we do not stand under condemnation for there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But we are free through grace in you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this gathering of the church, this ecclesia, this people who gathers together to worship their Redeemer. We come to you, Lord Jesus, in great need today, in great need of you to teach us from the life of Gideon about who you are, that you encounter this incredibly ordinary man and yet do something extraordinary through him because of who you are. So we come to you, Lord Jesus, as ordinary people. Come to you, Heavenly Father, as your children in great need of your instruction, of your direction, of your correction. Lead us, Lord Jesus, where you want us to go. Teach us through this passage. Holy Spirit, teach us what we need to know. And lead us in the everlasting way. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So here we are in the book of Judges. The story of Gideon goes uh, through chapter 6, 7, and 8. We're not going to read all that. <clears throat> I'm going to read... Parts of chapter 6, and then i uh, going to kind of skim the rest of the story. You can go back and read it all if you want to. <clears throat> There's bad guys like Zeba and Zalmunna. I mean, with names like that, it's an exciting story. But I'll leave that to you to read later in the week. But it starts off in chapter 6. Uh, Deborah was the previous judge, and then things are going all well. 
And then in 6.1 it says, Again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. So the Midianites were this uh, people who were, um, Moses' father-in-law was the Midianite, but they were a nomadic tribe that roamed up and down in the desert east of where Israel is. It says, because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. <clears throat> Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. So Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. So if you have a map of Israel in your mind, the, the east, like you have the uh, Jordan River uh, from your side. The Jordan River is over here, and that's kind of the, more or less the, the, the eastern boundary of the land. And the Midianites, the Amalekites, were from the, the east, the other side of it. They were crossing over the Jordan. Gaza is way over here by the Mediterranean Sea. So they were coming in and plundering all the way across. They were deep into the Israelite territory, and they were overwhelmed by them. They had incredible technology, the camel. And so the uh, camels were uh, faster than a dude running. And so they could come in, steal crops. What, would, what they would do is, since they were nomadic people, they would come in. And the Israelites had toiled all year long for the harvest. They had, they had sown and they had taken care of these things. And the Midianites would come in, and they would then steal their crops from them steal their livestock from them, and then run off before they could catch them. So the Israelites were helpless. It's not like they could just go to, you know, Costco and buy more raisin cakes or whatever. They, when they come and you stole their crop, you were in deep, deep trouble. So they impoverished the Israelites, and they had cried out to the Lord for help. Now in verse 7, when the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who remains unnamed. The prophet said this, This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them from before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. So the Lord hears their cry, and then he sends correction. Um, the Lord, uh, Spurgeon once said, the Lord does not uh, permit his children to sin successfully. And this idea is that becoming a believer kind of ruins sinning for us. Because it's no longer, you can't just go and sin and have fun anymore. And all of a sudden, it's, you realize the weight of it, the destruction of it, how much sickness it caused, how terrible it is, how awful it makes your heart and your mind and your body and how much devastation it sows in your own home. The Lord does not let us just stay as his children in sin. He calls us out of it. And that's what this, they cry out to him and the Lord rebukes them. He says, listen, you did not listen to me. It's as clear as a bell what the problem is. They know what they should be doing, but they won't do it. And so they are in this land. They're supposed to have occupied it and become a kingdom of priests sending out the redemptive story of God to the other nations. Instead, they did what the other nations did. They worshiped their gods. And this was not a pretty worship. It wasn't like they went and danced around flowers. It was things like child sacrifice, cult prostitution, awful 
the worst things you can think that humans can do to one another. That is what the gods of the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Amalekites, that is, that is what worshiping them looked like. And so they have not listened to him. He rebukes them. And then look what happens in verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Orphrah that belonged to Joash, the Abiazrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. So I'm no uh, agrarian historian, but I know that generally threshing floors were either on top of a hill or they were in an open plain where it was windy. Because here's how this worked. When you had grain, you would take like grains of wheat and they would smash it out and you would have the, the grain, they would roll it and the husk and the, and the grain would be there, but they'd all be stuck together. And the husk was this really light stuff called chaff. And so they would take this big winnowing fork and they would grab scoops of it, throw it up in the air, and the heavy grain would fall to the ground and the chaff would blow away. It was genius. It worked really well. It does not work really well in a wine press because wine presses generally were in a low part of a valley or a lower part of the hill so that the wine, one, so that they wouldn't have to carry heavy grapes from low to high, but two, so that the, the wine, when they squished it out, would run downhill and they could collect it. And it would be where they needed it to be. So Gideon is down here trying to do the very thing that he needs, but he cannot do it because he's not doing it where he needs to be doing it. You can't thresh wheat in a wine press. Why? Because he was trying to keep it from the Midianites. He knew that if he went out into an open place, if he goes up onto a hill and tries to get his food, the Midianites will see it. See, they'd been... Earlier we see that they're going in, their, uh, in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. They've been hiding their food away from the Midianites to try to survive. And this is what Gideon is doing. He's desperately trying to do what he needs. And the angel of the Lord comes to him and appears to Gideon, a cowardly thresher, and says, The Lord Yahweh is with you, mighty warrior. <laughs> uh, the Lord has a sense of humor. Just whenever you read the Bible, uh, just remember that we laugh as humans because God, the Lord laughs. He has a sense of humor. That is not a human invention. He's coming to Gideon. He says, mighty warrior. Look at Gideon's response in 18. <clears throat> but sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all these wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up from out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us. And put us into the hand of Midian. This is about 160 years since they entered the land. And the Lord turns to him and says, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, Gideon asks, How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. I'm the, I'm the lowest of the low. And the Lord answers, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. So Gideon replies, if I now have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Don't go wait till I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Phenomenal. So Gideon goes, he prepares a goat and some flour and makes some bread without yeast. And he brings it up to, to the Lord and he lays it on this rock. And the Lord touches it with the tip of his staff and the whole thing gets blown up in fire and flares up and it all goes away, and then the angel of the Lord disappears. And in verse 22, when Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Ah, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And to see the Lord face to face means annihilation. But the Lord said to him, 
peace. Do not be afraid. You are not going to die. And so Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is peace. Yahweh Shalom. To this day, it stands there in Orpha. So, you have this guy Gideon, who is not brave. He's not even just ordinary. He's lower than ordinary. He is the littlest, he's the, like the littlest dude in the littlest family in the littlest tribe of Israel. He's trying desperately to do what he needs to survive, and he cannot do it. His plan is a bad plan. And the, yet the Lord appears to him there. And then in verse 25, that same night, the Lord says to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, when he's seven years old, and tear down your father's altar to Baal, and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of its height, using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down. Offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So what he's telling this is, all right, Gideon, I'm coming to you, valiant warrior. I'm going to be with you. I want you to go to your hometown. I want you to go to their place of worship. And I want you to tear it down. Tear down these idols to Baal. Tear down the Asherah pole. I want you to cut up the very thing that they were using, this wooden pole, to worship these foreign gods. And then I want you to take a bull and I want you to sacrifice it to, to me using the very pole that they were using to worship another god. Burn it. And so Gideon in great bravery goes in the middle of the night and, and does it. And everybody wakes up the next day and they're all mad because he burned down their stuff. And they come up and they, get, they find his dad and they're like, hey, um, look what Gideon did. And Gideon's dad says, well, you know what? If he's going to contend with Baal, let, him, let Baal contend with him. Fine. And so they all say, well, that makes sense. And they kind of leave him alone. Then the Midianites and the Amalekites come back and they cross over the Jordan and they camp in the valley of Jezreel, which is up near, <clears throat> near the coast of uh, kind of opening up from the, from the Mediterranean, coming down into the land. When the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, he blew a trumpet and summoned all these people to follow him. And then Gideon says to the Lord, listen, if you're going to save Israel by my hand, I need a, another little sign here. And this is where this, he lays this fleece out. It's fine. I'm going to lay out a fleece, which is like a, a, a sheepskin with the skin and the fur still on it. He lays this fleece out, and he says, fine, okay, here's what we're going to do. I want it to do in the morning, but just on the fleece and not on the ground. And the Lord does it. So in the morning, the ground is dry and the fleece is wet. And the Gideon's like, okay, hold on, just hold on. Tomorrow, I want you to, I'm going to put the same fleece down, and I want it to be uh, dewy on the ground, but I want the fleece to be dry. And so the Lord does it. And the fleece was dry, and only the ground was covered with dew. And then Gideon goes out, and he finds these group. He has these guys, and we, as you read through chapter 7 and chapter 8, you know that the number of Midianites and Amalekites is 135,000 men. And they're, they're, they're wily camels. And they're coming in, doing all kinds of bad stuff. The Israelites, can they get 32,000 dudes. Bad odds. And the Lord looks at Gideon and he says, if you go and attack with these guys and you win, you're going to say that you did it and not me. So tell everybody that's afraid they can go home. So Gideon says, if you're scared, go home. 22,000 leave, leave them with 10,000 guys. So God goes, God tells Gideon, listen, that 10,000 is still too many. I want you all to go get a drink from this river. And when you drink, those who get on all fours and, and slurp out of the water, send them home. Those that scoop up water in their hands, bring them, bring them with you. That number totaled 300 dudes. 
So Gideon has now, Gideon the mighty warrior has 300 men against 135,000 bad guys. Awesome odds. Unless, of course, the Lord is the one who's doing it. And that is, of course, what happens. The Lord uses these 300 men to rout this Midianite and Amalekite army. They go on, and you can read the rest of the story in chapter 7 and 8 and 9 and 10. And, and Gideon kind of rises and becomes this judge. And then he is really dumb in his old age, and he makes an idol, and they worship it, and they fall down. And then his sons don't do very well. Just read the story. It's in Judges. But you have this man, Gideon. What do we learn from who the Lord is from this story of this incredibly ordinary man doing an incredibly ordinary thing, which is threshing wheat in a very inefficient way? The first thing is this, and I want to sort of imagine that this first point is going to be kind of like the, the mantle, and we're going to have four other points. I want, they're going to kind of hang like hooks off of that that you can hang your stockings on later or whatever. But this main point is this. That we can cry out to God when we're in trouble. Even if we cause the trouble that we're in. So let me say that again. We can cry out to God when we're in trouble. Even if we caused the trouble that we're in. Whose fault was it that the Israelites were getting whipped up by the Midianites? It was the Israelites' fault. Living in a world where we say that nobody is at fault is dumb. It doesn't help anybody. If I am doing something that is destructive behavior, I need you to look at me and say, that behavior is destructive and it's destroying things, so stop it. The Lord sends a prophet and says, you're not listening to me. I laid out a plan for you in the law. Do it and all will go well. But they wouldn't. Their heart were hard. They were stiff-necked. And they refused to submit to the authority of the Lord. But could they cry out to him? Yes. This is what it means to be a child of God. When John says that to those who believed in his name, talking about Jesus, he gave them the right to be called children of God. It means that you, as a child of God, can cry out to your Heavenly Father. No matter what you've done. There is nothing between you and the Lord. There isn't. It is Jesus standing there making intercession for you constantly. That's the entire book of Hebrews, that we can come to him in our time of need. That we can cry out to God when we are in trouble, even if we are the cause of the trouble that we're in. Don't ever believe the lie that the devil tells you that God does not love you. It's the greatest lie that he's ever told. Even just sitting here waiting to come up to preach, you know the things that the devil is accusing me of? I'm trying to come up here. Every one of them is true. Every one of them he's accusing me of is true. But I'm not up here in my own power. It is the Lord Jesus who saves me. It is the Lord Jesus who saves you. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He won your sonship, your daughtership. So go to him when you're in trouble. On this kind of mantle of that truth, I want to hang four things. And one of them is this, that God meets us in the valley of our fear, frustration, and failure. Gideon is down in this low spot, both metaphorically and physically. And it says in verse 11, the angel of the Lord came. 
did Gideon go up to heaven and be like, I'm going to bring down holy power? No. He's like an idiot trying to thresh wheat, doing the best he can in a really bad situation. He is terrified, he is frustrated, and he is failing. What does the Lord do? He comes where Gideon is. He comes into the valley of his fear, his frustration, and his failure. So the question I have to ask you today is, what are you afraid of? How have you failed? How are you frustrated? The Lord calls us to do all kinds of crazy things like love our neighbor, submit to your husband. I mean, what? Why is that in there? Love your wife like Jesus loves the church? She's mean. Why do I have to love her? Forgive as God forgave you. Peter even asked Jesus, he's like, hey, Lord, um, how many times? Give me a number so I can keep checking. When that's done, I'm done. Seven times? And the Lord's like, 70 times seven? I'm going to tell you a story now. There's a guy who owed like four and a half billion dollars. He goes up to this other guy that he owes the money to. And he's going to throw him in jail. And he says, have mercy on me. And the guy says, you know what, I forgive your debt. Four and a half billion dollars. Another dude owes him like 15 grand. He, in his freedom, goes out and throttles that guy by the neck and throws him in jail. That did not make the Lord happy. We forgive as we've been forgiven. I mean, what? These are just like three or four things in the New Testament that we're commanded to do. Revolutionary. What is God calling you to do? What are you afraid of right now? How are you frustrated? How are you failing? I, as I look back on um, about the past three years from when we moved to Guatemala until now, I, um, we've, you know, just the moving and the, the grieving process of that and, and moving here and all of that kind of loss that you go through and then uh, with my dad going to the Lord and all these things, you've got all this stuff going on and you realize you, you, you stand there and you look back over three years and think, man, I've done like maybe 10% of what I wanted to do in the past three years. What a failure. Guess what? That's where the Lord meets me. He comes right down and hits me where I'm at. I'm Gideon threshing in a wine press, failing. And yet the Lord comes down and says to me, Hey there, mighty warrior. It's marvelous that he meets us there. So God meets us in the valley of our fear, our frustration, or failure. Second point is that God is gracious where our faith is weak. The Lord calls him mighty warrior, and, and Gideon's first thing is to question him. Isn't that what we do? But, sir, if the Lord is with us, why is all this happening to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about? Those wonders are just waiting for them to obey, but... He asks him a question because that's where he's at. But he says, but now the Lord has abandoned us. Does the Lord smack, me, smack uh, poor Gideon around? No. It says he turns and says, go in the strength that you have. Am I not sending you? But Lord, Gideon asks, how can I save Israel? And the Lord says, I will be with you. Amazing. And then... 
Gideon says, okay, wait, wait, wait. I got to go do some stuff to prove that you're who you say you are. And then the Lord, this is the Lord that Treb talked about last week. The, when you see the Lord in capital letters in your Bible, it's Yahweh. I am that I am. This, it is the Lord in his cosmic perfect being. He who created the universe, who holds all the protons and electrons spinning around the nucleuses and all the atoms and all of the stars and all of this vast incalculable universe says, I'll wait till you get back. How gracious is that? Instead of God saying, dude, Gideon, enough. Dude, and, the, and with the fleeces you're going to do? No. Just do it already. He is so gracious when our faith is weak. That's why Jesus says, if you have faith like a mustard seed. Uh, there's a, I think it's a blog title. I've got a mustard seed and I'm not afraid to use it. And it's like this idea of this, I hold up this, mustard seeds are so small, like a, like a grain of salt almost. And it's like you hold it up and you're like, Lord, it's all I have. Move mountain. It's this concept that I don't have to have this massive faith, I just have to trust him. And he is gracious when our faith is weak. So he meets us in the valley of our fear and frustration of failure. He's gracious to us when we're weak. And the third thing is that God speaks peace into our fear. Gideon offers this to the Lord. It gets blown up in fire and he's terrified. But the Lord says to him, peace, do not be afraid. C.S. Lewis said, God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. The only peace that exists, true peace, is in the presence of a holy, good, wonderful God. So if you seek peace outside of that, good luck. It's not going to work for long because that's not peace. And then Gideon builds this altar to him and calls him Yahweh Shalom. The Lord is peace. He speaks peace into our fear. What are you afraid of? What is your failure and your frustration? Maybe it's, maybe your marriage is struggling and you need to go to counseling, but you're afraid. The Lord speaks peace into that fear. Maybe you've got a business that you started and it's not going well and you're afraid. The Lord speaks peace into that fear. Maybe there is, maybe you're like Israel and you have the Midianites and it's like sin has gone from one side into you, out the other, clean across you. That sin has gone clean in and it's all over. And you are terrified that one, that someone would find out, or two, what's the Lord going to do? Legalism, which is um, earning your way to God or earning his favor. Legalism says, I screwed up. Dad is going to kill me, right? That's what legalism says. Grace says, I screwed up. I've, I've got to go talk to Dad. You see the difference? One of them sees their father as the, the, the resolution of their problem. The legalist sees God as to be placated and run away from. That is the exact opposite of the gospel. The gospel is, I want it for you. Now walk in it. He speaks peace into our fear. And the fourth thing is this. God transforms cowards into valiant warriors, into mighty warriors, into brave 
warriors. When God met Gideon in the valley of his fear, his failure, and his frustration, was he a mighty warrior? No, he wasn't. Why did God call him a mighty warrior then? Was he mistaken? Did he had the wrong guy? No, the answer to that is no. He did not have the wrong guy. It's not like, oh, oh, sorry, I thought you were a Gideon, not Gideon. No, it's not. He, why does God call him that? A better question, why does he call you and me saints when we're not? Are you holy all the time? I'm not. Anybody who says that they are is lying, and you should slap them and then run the other way. Unless it's Jesus. Don't do that. Why does God call us saints? Because he sees the end of who he's making us into. He is a God who transforms the ordinary into the extraordinary because of his activity in the life of a person. He would make Gideon into a mighty warrior if what? If Gideon would trust him and then obey. That's all Gideon's got to do. Gideon's got to trust the Lord and then obey. He's got some issues on the trust side, let's be honest. Gideon needs a lot of encouragement. He is super, super frustrated. That's why he asked for these proofs. Let me do this so you can do this. Let me lay this fleece out. Let me. And the Lord is gracious in his weak faith. So what are you afraid of? You know, Treb and I have a fear of running this whole thing into the ground. Be real honest. We know that it's the Lord, right? I get it. We totally get that. Like, I know that it's the Lord's thing, but hmm. um, we, have, we can screw it up if we intentionally do it. <laughs> the worst thing that you can do in a church is start doing it on your own and stop trusting the Lord. That's our, that's our fear as elders, is we come up to a decision and our, our human response is, let's go thresh weed in the wine press. Bad idea. That's not what the Lord wants. The Lord wants us to trust Him. He wants to, us to allow Him to speak peace into our fear and then to allow Him to transform us into mighty warriors when we are cowardly threshers. That is what the Lord wants with each of us. I look back at all the things I've wanted to do in my family, things I've wanted to do in ministry, things I've wanted to build or make or weight I've wanted to lose or shape I've wanted to get into or whatever. There's a long list of things that I've failed at. <laughs> what do I do with that fear? Well, I'm going to invite you to do something this morning. These little cards, which uh, if you are a, a guest or a visitor or whatever, you already filled one out. But if you can take one and you can either tear it off or you can write it on here. Here's what I want you to do. As I close this in prayer here in a minute, if while we've been up here uh, been listening, if, if the Lord's impressing something on your heart, something that, a failure that is holding on to you, or a frustration or a fear that you have, I want you to write it down. Because what Gideon would have wrote on this is he would have written, the Midianites. I'm afraid of them. They're big, they're strong, they've got camels, they're stealing my stuff, I can't help it. God help me. What in your life, is there a sin in your life that's running in like camels and stealing all your joy? What is it? Write it down. Is there something that you, the Lord's calling you to do? Is it go talk to your neighbors? Is it go call your mom? Talk to your dad? Call your sister? Is it 
spend time with your kids? Is it, I don't know what it is, start a business, stop a business? I don't know what's going on in your mind and your heart, but the Lord does. If he's laying something on your heart, what I want you to do is, as I pray, I want you to just, you can write it on this small one, you can write it on the big one. If you're super brave and you want to write it on there and you want to say, I, here's my struggle, I need help. And then you stick it in that black box and we will take it out and we will read it and we will pray. And if you write your email or your phone number, we will call you and we will talk to you and we will help. The purpose of church is not everybody to come here and talk about how great we are. It's to come here and talk about how great God is. And that requires us to be honest. So if you're struggling, I challenge you to write it down. Maybe you're at a place where you're like, you know, I don't really have a fear or a frustration or a failure that I'm dealing with right now. You have in the past, yes? So I'm going to challenge you to come up here and tell us about it. Tell us about how the Lord has brought you victory, how he came into the valley of your fear and your failure and your frustration and brought you out of it. Why? Because when we tell each other those stories, it encourages those who are in them that God can get me through it too. So write it down. Just write down whatever it is. And you can just keep it in your Bible if you want to and just say, Lord, I'm struggling with my fear is this, my failure is this, I, my finances are a disaster, my whatever Help me, Lord. This is my fear. And then bring it to the Lord. Bring it to the Lord. Maybe you put it in your Bible. Maybe you put it back there. Maybe you talk to somebody afterwards. But do something about it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you, I thank you that you came down into the valley of where we are at. As Ezekiel said that you came into a valley full of bones that were scorched dry by the sun. That's like our spiritual life. And you made those bones come alive again, Lord. If you redeemed us from our sin, you can help us in our failure. You can help us in our fear. Give us clarity to write down the things that we are afraid of, Lord. The things that are frustrating us. The things that are, that where we have failed Lord, maybe I failed to lead my family in Bible study or to pray with my wife. Maybe I failed to pay my bills on time or something simple, Lord. Lead us into what we're afraid of because you speak peace, Lord Jesus, into our life and you say, do not fear. Lord God, fear is not from you. Courage is from you. Power, life. Abundant life. The gospel is from you. And we are the earthen vessels that carry it on this broken planet, Lord Jesus. Oh Lord, we live in enemy-occupied territory. Every single pin on that map out there, it's like a kingdom claim for who you are, Lord Jesus. That a, a person who is a follower of Jesus lives there. Help us mark out the world that we're in, Lord Jesus. Help us write out the fears that we have and bring them to you, that you would transform us as ordinary, fearful, failing, frustrated people into brave and valiant warriors for your glory and for the good of all mankind. We lay our struggle before you, Lord Jesus. We entrust ourselves to you. Help us. In Christ's name we pray.